If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 3, we continue this series, Let Me Tell You a Story, focusing on not only Mark's gospel of Jesus Christ, but also the unique way in which Mark tells the story of Jesus Christ. We'll begin this morning in chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. Surprise, surprise. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Just imagine being so pressed with people that you can't lift your arm from your side to put food in your mouth. That's a crowd. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Dun, dun. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother." and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you that there were several sandwich stories in the Gospel of Mark. One of the ways that Mark tells the story of Jesus is to periodically insert one story as an interruption almost between another story. There was the fig tree story with the destruction, the, the, uh, the clearing of the temple inserted in the middle of that fig tree story. Well, here's another one of Mark's great sandwich stories. In this case, the bread of the sandwich is the story about Jesus' family coming to take charge of him. 
and the filling or the stuffing in the sandwich are the accusations of the teachers of the law and Jesus's response to them. Each of these two stories, one inserted within the other, sheds light, gives meaning to the other story. So let's take a closer, a closer look at how this sandwich is stacked. Beginning with verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. Why would Jesus's family, his mother and his brothers say that Jesus is out of his mind? Well, perhaps this is a bit of that story. Jesus had left his widowed mother to hit the road as an itinerant preacher, hadn't he? He was the firstborn son. It was his, responsible after the death of, his responsibility after the death of Joseph to make sure that his mother was provided for. And here he is taking off, shirking the responsibilities, I'm sure the people in his family and the, and the people in Nazareth probably thought. Secondly, he had left the family business. He was a carpenter, a builder, a jack of all trades, probably bringing in a fair income, probably employing the other siblings in that family. And yet he had taken it off, leaving his part of the job to be picked up by somebody else in the family. Perhaps that has something to do with the attitude that they've developed. Jesus had demonstrated since leaving home that he had a great propensity for picking fights with those in religious authority, hadn't he? <laughs> do, you, do you know people in your life, over the course of your life, who just have a way of irritating other people? It's no way to get ahead, is it? You know, people that get fired from multiple jobs? What are they thinking? Why can't you just get along with everybody? You must be out of your mind. And then you look back at the string of stories in the first couple chapters in, in chapter 3 of, chapter, uh, of Mark here. Jesus is eating with sinners. What is he thinking? He's healing people on the Sabbath, bringing down condemnation for violating the Sabbath laws. He's formed a band of followers made up of undesirable, unpromising bumbles, hasn't he? And, and that crew of followers, his disciples, are this hodgepodge of people some, from such, some, such different backgrounds. You've got Simon the Zealot, who has in his past taken up the sword to try to liberate Israel. And then you've got Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, and collaborating with the Romans. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in the early days of that partnership? <laughs> These weren't the best of the best of the best from synagogue school. These were just ordinary people with all kinds of personalities. If you're going to create a movement, that's going to be a problem. Jesus, why didn't you pick people that got along? It's a recipe for disaster. 
So Jesus has apparently, from the perspective of others, thrown away safety and security and his reputation and the reputation of his family. Never before did anyone deserve the label crazy like Jesus deserved the label crazy, right? Now, let's look at the filling of this sandwich. Verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Say that with me three times. Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Be the devil. Okay? He's possessed by the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. His family thinks he's crazy. The teachers of the law think he's demon-possessed. Another label that's been slapped on Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this charge from the teachers of the law? Beginning with verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. There are three things that Jesus says in response to their charge that he's possessed by the devil. First, he gives them a, a logic lesson, verses 23 through 26. The logic is this, why in the world, if Satan is trying to defeat God, why in the world would the devil fight against himself? That just doesn't make sense, does it? Why would he divide himself by fighting against himself, a, a civil war among the demons? Jesus' logic is that if it is demon versus demon, then it's actually a good thing, isn't it? Because it's going to result in the demise of the devil. Why are you guys making a big deal out of this? If this is Satan versus Satan, then he's going down. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Come on, guys, think this through straight. That makes no sense whatsoever. The second thing he does is he tells them a parable about a strong man. In this parable, Jesus is the strong man. And he's strong because in his battle with the devil in the wilderness of Judah, he defeated the devil. The devil tried to get into the strong man's house. He tried to subvert the plan of God. He tried to get Jesus to take shortcuts instead of following the will of his father, a will that led to the cross. He says, I can make you famous. I can make you powerful. I can make you rich. I can have people bowing down at your feet. And Jesus met every one of the temptations with the word of his heavenly father, the confidence that God's way is the only way. 
and the devil was defeated. The point Jesus is making here is that he couldn't be possessed by the devil because he had already defeated the devil. The third thing he says in response to their accusation is a very stern rebuke. Verse 28 begins with the words, Truly I tell you, if you grew up with the King James Version, that was, Verily, verily. Truly, I tell you, might I suggest that when you're reading the Gospels, whenever Jesus says, truly, I tell you, you better pay attention. All truth of Jesus coming out of his mouth is important, but I suspect that when he begins by saying, truly, I tell you, you really better pay attention. The truth that he's telling them as that this is not a demonic civil war that's going on before them. This is God defeating the forces of evil. Therefore, it's disrespecting God to call it anything else. Such disrespect has a name, doesn't it? It's called blasphemy. This is serious business. He says this is an eternal and unpardonable sin. If you're living your life by disrespecting God, by giving credit to somebody other than the God who is working in your life and in our world, you're just not going to make it. This is not going to work. Blasphemy is attributing God's power to something or someone else, in this case, Beelzebul, the devil. And it's a mortal insult to God that they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. So he slaps these teachers of the law down hard, doesn't he? There's the filling of the sandwich. Now let's get back to the second piece of bread. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside of this crowded building, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my, brother, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus asks one of the most important questions of all time. Who are my mother and my brother? Who's a part of the family? Who are the people that are in, not out? And then Jesus gives one of the most important answers of all time. Here is my mother and my brothers. This motley crew sitting around this table in this crowded house, here are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. They are the people who do God's will. That's the definition. 
Who's a part of the family of God? The people who do the will of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, obedience is thicker than blood. Obedience. Just because you're a teacher of the law and you know the Torah inside and out doesn't mean you're part of the family because it's obedience that makes you a part of the family. Not what you think, not yet what, what you believe. So we've got this sandwich story. Jesus' family, two pieces of bread, stuffed with a conversation with teachers of the law. One lending meaning to the other. Since Jesus was the Messiah and not a devil, then he's in a position to proclaim a new definition for the family, isn't he? A definition which we know, ironically, has the power to divide, doesn't it? Several times in the Gospels, we hear of this division, mother and sons and fathers and daughters and families are going to be divided because Jesus has redefined the family. And I would imagine, looking back on it, understanding what the people of Israel were expecting out of a Messiah, that a definition like that for family to them probably would, has, would have been nearly as shocking as if Jesus were to start calling himself Beelzebul. <laughs> we are the family of Israel. We are the 12 tribes of Israel. I can, I can trace my lineage back generation after generation after generation. What do you mean just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean I'm a part of the family? What do you mean that just because I believe God and the Torah doesn't mean that I'm a part of the family of God? That's crazy. Another one of the common themes in this sandwich story is the, the theme of the house or the family and the divisions that define who's in and who's out. You know, normally I would say, preaching a sermon, that labels are a bad thing. They're a hurtful thing, right? To slap a label on somebody just because of a first impression or a limited knowledge of who they are is not a good thing, right? We call it bias, we call it prejudice, we call it racist, we call it sexist. We don't slap labels, but here's a time when Jesus actually decides to play that game with them in order to make his most important point. Doing God's will is what makes you part of the family of God. Slap that label on. Jesus is establishing something entirely new and unexpected, and everyone is going to need to redefine their labels, including us here this morning. Choices are going to have to be made if we're going to be a part of the family as Jesus describes it. Jesus is telling us that God's new birth family is more important than our birth family. Do you get that? God's new birth family, the born-again family, is more important than our birth family, our nuclear family, our extended family, the people that share our gene pool. 
Mark's story, like that of Matthew and Luke and John, invites us into the story. It becomes our story as he invites us to sit around that table in that crowded house, doesn't it? So who were the people sitting around that table, the people that are sitting around that table with us 2,000 years ago? Who were the people that were being declared by Jesus to be a part of his family? I, I used the word bumble to describe them earlier. You might also call them bunglers. You know, Mark doesn't spare the reputation of disciples in his gospel, does he? <laughs> One might think that he would paint as glowing a picture of those fellow believers as humanly possible, but he doesn't, does he? You see all the warts and all the wrinkles and all the bad choices and all the crazy questions, don't you? Mark is assumed to be getting most of these stories from Peter, with whom he was a, a traveling companion and a translator and, and writing down his stories to create this gospel. And yet Peter comes off, you know, Mark's mentor, Mark's close pastoral friend gives him this reputation. Peter, the worst of sinners. Peter, the biggest bungler of them all. James and John asking the most ludicrous questions possible. It's been said that the reason Mark tells these kind of stories on them is because he wants Jesus to shine brighter than any other heroes in this story. So the people sitting around that table with Jesus this day are bumbling and they're bungling and they're a mess. But I would also imagine, I've just got a sneaky suspicion and an imagination to say that probably sitting around that table there might have been a few blind people and a few sick people and maybe a lame person who had been brought in by their friends and, uh, and, and maybe a demon-possessed person or two on their best behavior that day. There were people that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would have called sinners, and there they are at Jesus' elbow around that table in that crowded house that day. But really, who are those people? When you strip off the labels of sinners and lame people and lepers and on and on, who are those people? They are people who are being purified because they're sitting in the presence of Jesus and doing the will of God. They're people who are being empowered for mission and service because they're sitting there with Jesus Christ and doing the will of God. They're people who are being regenerated and justified and adopted into the new family of God. As Peter would say, they are the new chosen people. They are the new royal priesthood. <laughs> Not those bunglers up in the temple in Jerusalem. No, these people, these sinners sitting around me at this table, these are the new royal priesthood. And they're made that way because they're submitting to and cooperating with the redeeming grace of God. They're doing the will of God. And you're sitting there at the table with them. Can I at least get a woo-hoo? Thank you, Jesus. This makes the, the food taste better. The 
The difference between the teachers of the law and that ragtag collection of disciples around the table is that the teachers had bought into a false story of who Jesus was, haven't they? He's not the Messiah we're expecting. He's doing and saying things that make no sense to us. He must be possessed by a demon. He's not the kind of warlike, liberating Messiah that we were hoping for. The disciples, on the other hand, may not fully understand who Jesus is, right? <laughs> they wouldn't understand that until Easter Sunday morning and beyond. But at least they were believing that he was the Messiah, not a devil. Can we join them in believing the grace of God as we stumble along trying to figure it out? I don't have all the answers. I can't piece it all together, but I, I'm going to hold on by the, the edge of his robe because I, I know he's leading us someplace important. Can we believe in the upside-down power of dying to self so that we might live to God? No matter how ridiculous it sounds to die to myself on a cross, can we have the courage to ask the stupid questions they ask Jesus? <laughs> Can I get a witness if you've ever asked a stupid question of Jesus? Prayed a stupid prayer to Jesus, yeah? Let's keep it up, folks. Can we set aside the accusations that the teachers of the law were throwing at Jesus while we're allowing God to renew our minds and strengthen our faith? I may be a bumble, but I'm wearing the right label. Now let's turn our attention to uh, our neighbor, our, our friend, our family. <clears throat> I preached a sermon from this passage a number of years ago at my last church. And at the end of the service, I did what I normally do. I went to stand at the back door and greet people and have little short conversations on the way out. And one of the last people to come to me was the matriarch of one of the larger, older families in our church, Carol. And in her classic swamp Yankee voice, she said, Pasta, I got to talk to you about this family thing. <laughs> and took me to task about the fact that I had said that the family of God is our first family. And our birth family comes second. She said, Pasta, I, I just can't believe that's true. And we had a little bit of an extended conversation there at the back door. I think that might have been one of those weeks where, in classic Carol faction, fashion, about Thursday, I got a letter from her. She was a muller. John, do you ever have those kind of, you know, a muller? So Thursday, I get this letter in the mail. Pasta! I can hear the voice in the... Yeah. <laughs> and we had another conversation about that sermon a week later. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. I don't think she was debate, debating me about uh, which is our first family as much as she was saying, I have a passion to see my birth family, my children, my grandchildren become a part of that first family. The reason they are so important to me is because I want them to be a part of my new birth family. We worked out the vocabulary and we're still friends to this day. 
I continue to get letters from her, as a matter of fact. The debate ought not to be about which is our first family. Jesus settled that question, didn't he? The important question is, how do we incorporate our birth family into our new birth family? Oftentimes, our witness in our birth family is the poorest witness we ever give, isn't it? Can we be honest with each other? I'll be honest with you. I do a tremendous job of hiding the fact when I'm in public, when I'm standing up in a pulpit in front of you, of hiding the fact that I have an anger management issue. When I was a kid, my friends would quite often be caught saying, temper, 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 because I was having an anger management issue. So you've probably never seen that. But my family has seen that. When our kids were little, our three daughters were tormenting our son. They had gone into the girl's bedroom and locked the door and wouldn't let Jordan come in. And the, the escalation of this thing was just getting louder and louder. And I was getting more and more hassled. And I went upstairs and I figured out what, you know, was told what was going on here. And I was, they had locked the door on not only Jordan, but their father for crying out loud. You don't do that in my house, do you? When I discovered that the door was locked, I kicked my foot into that door to open the door, and my foot went right through that hollow core door. <laughs> I can imagine, kids are saying my kids are scarred for life. I can just imagine the silence on the other side of that door that fell when they saw dad's foot sticking out of a hole in the door. We're still on good terms, by the way. I think only two of them are still going to counseling. But you know, this is the way it is with so many families. It comes out usually at weddings and funerals, doesn't it? But if we, we really want our birth family, our children, our grandchildren, our parents to become part of our new birth family, perhaps we need to devote some time to saying, what has my witness been like in my household, in my family? You know, we talk about incarnation, reputation, conversation, confrontation, transformation. Well, incarnation is not a problem, right? They're our family. But reputation. Lord, what do we need to do to repair the damage that was done when the foot went through the door. Lord, what do I need to go back and apologize for so that my children will say, oh, my parents profess to be Christians. They did some things that didn't look very Christ-like, but at least they acknowledge that. They recognize that, and they're humbly seeking to become more Christ-like people, not just in public, but in private as well. This particular sandwich story presents a contrast, a contrast between a crowd of disciples inside the house and the teachers of the law who are questioning Jesus 
and of mother and brothers who have come to take away their crazy son. But it forces us, the reader, to become a part of this story, to look at that contrast, to place ourselves within that family, that situation, that scene, and ask ourselves the question, is, is Jesus crazy? Or is he the Messiah? Is Jesus demon-possessed? Or is he the son of God? Am I a part of his family? Or am I still looking in from the outside? Are we going to label Jesus crazy or demon-possessed or the firstborn son of the new birth family of God? Or C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell put it much more poetically, is Jesus a liar or a lunatic or is he Lord? Brothers and sisters, we have been enjoyed and in, uh, invited to, to join those disciples, those followers around the table this morning. And the table that we're joined around has a little plastic cup of insipid grape juice and a styrofoam wafer. Oops, mine broke too early. But as we're holding these elements of communion, these symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus, can we acknowledge that only by throwing ourselves on the mercy and grace of God will we ever be a part of that new birth family? And you've done it already. Praise God. But can we be reminded this morning that within our families, the way to bring those who don't know Jesus into that new birth family is by likewise dying to ourself, humbling ourselves, trusting in the grace, the new covenant found in the blood of Christ, and doing the will of God by repenting, by confessing, by being reconciled, by having some awkward, hard conversations with people that we've avoided in our family for years and years and years, perhaps. Jesus took that loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which will be broken on a cross tomorrow. so that when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And thank you, Jesus, for drawing us to yourself. Let's take and eat this bread together. And then he took a, a cup, the cup of redemption in the Seder Supper. And he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Not an annual sacrifice, but a once for all time sacrifice of my body and my blood. That you might be a part of God's covenant family.
that you might be a part of God's covenant family, that you might be a part of God's covenant family, that your children might be a part of God's covenant family, that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your aunts and your uncles and your parents and your grandparents and on and on it goes. God wants them to be a part of that first family. So let's trust in the power of Christ's blood and share this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for saying and doing the things that you did. And Lord, thank you for Peter, who was so observant, even though he was a bumble and didn't get it. And thank you for Mark, who wrote down those stories in ways that make them come to life for us 2,000 years later. And thank you for inviting us to sit around that table and hear your teaching and see your miracle-working power. Thank you for speaking to us this morning, not just to those people 2,000 years ago. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of your new birth family. And Lord, we pray in the week to come, the months to come, that you will open the door for conversations to take place, that you will allow us opportunities to rebuild a reputation of Christ-like obedience in the places where we've put our foot through the door. Bring our families to be a part of your new birth family, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your grace this morning. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's children say,